Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It's David. It's podcast time. You know the drill. We're trying to make economics a little bit more comprehensible, a little bit more relevant, and hopefully a little bit more germane to everyone's life. Hope you had a good week. Mr. Davis, my man, how was your week? Uh, it was really good, actually, Mac. Yeah, I actually got out to do a bit of a decent hike, which I've been wanting to do for a while. I persuaded a few of the lads to join me and told them that we, you know, out for a three or four hour hike, uh, which ended up being seven and a half. Oh, Jesus, John, where did you go? <laughs> no, no, we went up over Camaderry Mountain. See, we kind of lost the trail. So a lot of it was off piece tumbling down Heather Hills and stuff like that. It's great fun. Just then around by Turlock Hill and back into Glendalough. But of course, the worst bit of, of this kind of hiking, especially when you don't plan it so well, it's always the last stretch, which you think is, oh, we'd be back to the car in about a half hour, two hours later. So the lads are kind of, uh, <laughs> were kind of broken. I was in great shape myself. Yeah. R- remind me, remind me not to be getting those walking boots on the next time you enthuse me for a schlep. No, you wouldn't be able for a Mac. I'll get you out though. <laughs> Listen, so all is good. Are that the commune is full. Uh, a band has moved in. So as you know, the control has... The, the control has waned the control, again. <laughs> the control systems are all gone. But no, we had, a, we had a good week this week. Lucy's song. Do you remember Fair Play we played yeah, uh, in April? She released it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this week, it just passed 1 million downloads, which is really wow, amazing. Oh, that is amazing. You know, and no no marketing, no publicity, none of that sort of stuff, except for, of course, yourself and myself plugging away, John. But as well, she has... Well, you She absolutely... Me, well, oh, hold on a second. Me first, okay? You can get your cut in time. I've uh, I've invested heavily in this. But uh, she's a new single out called Runaway. God, you sound like an old fogey there, Mac, which are singles. uh, Do we call them singles? No, we call them tracks or something. Just not singles. A new track. It's not top of the pops. And of course, they're going to drop a new track. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I have yeah, to yeah. drop it. it. Just it dropped it. <laughs> okay, we're dropping a new... Lucy's dropping a new track. She's just dropped a new track called Runaway. And we're going to, we're going to do what is now a tradition after one for yeah, us. Yeah. We're going to play out with Lucy McWilliams's new track called Runaway. So it's been a good week. Been a good, good week. Excellent. What are you making of all the new lockdown stuff? Well, you know... I'm like everybody else. I am absolutely sick of COVID and lockdown and all the rest. But 
You know, it's a funny thing. With about 98, 99% of COVID tests being negative, I think it's made people a little bit more complacent with all the pent up anxiety and all the rest. People just want to get out. But this is the predicted second wave. Like we knew this was coming. So we still need to remain vigilant and wear a feckin' mask. Yeah, no, I think you're I think you're absolutely right. And there's also there's also a very sort of strange blame game going on. It seems that if you contrast yeah. the performance of the government the last one, yeah, yeah. three months ago. Yeah, they don't seem to be quite this one. Yeah, they don't seem to be quite on the case. Yeah, they, these guys seem to be they're they're kind of all over the shop. Yeah, it's COVID fatigue. Uh you know, I certainly talking to younger people, mm. there is a real sense of they feel there's an overreaction. They also feel they're getting blamed. And there's really little they can do. Sure. You know, yeah. what can they do? You know, they, they want to go out. Yeah. It doesn't mean you've got to go out and go mental, but they want to go out. They want to hang out with their friends. And for them, again, it's this idea is that COVID is really remote. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because they know that mortality rates amongst the young are incredibly low. And yeah, true. they understand that mortality rates in general in the population are quite low. And again, it's like anything, John, when you're, when you're 19, 20, 21, yeah, you're mortality is, you're absolutely invincible. But you yeah. know what I tell you, John, I've been reading this week about of course you have. the hunter-gatherers and Ooh. the transition between humans yeah. going from hunter-gatherers to humans going to become the agricultural revolution, the first agricultural revolution. Came right. across an amazing statistic, John, and it's important with the context of this conversation. Go on. In this, let's say, so for example, humans started to settle down around 10,000 BC. That's the archaeological yeah. evidence, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah From yeah. 10,000 BC to 5,000 BC, the human population on Earth went from 4 million to 5 million which is a tiny, tiny, tiny increase. Yeah, yeah. From 5,000 BC to, let's say, when Christ was knocking around chasing the moneylenders out (laughs) of the temple, right? Do you remember that? Get out. I just get. He was burning the bondholders. Burning the bondholders. Exactly. Burning the (laughs) bondholders. I'm not accepting that currency. Out you go, right? From the 5,000 BC to then, that 5,000 years, the human population goes up to 100 million. Wow. So wow. the first 5,000 years of, let's say, domestication, yeah. human population hardly increases at all. Second 5,000 years, it goes up 25 times. The question is why? Now, the problem with history is it gets very, very blurry the further back you go. Hey, come here. We- uh, hang on. Uh, how do they know this? Like, how do they count the population from back in those days? From all sorts of carbon dating and carbon records and trying to figure out, you know, how many archaeological sites there were, etc. So, you know, these are, again... So it's a fair bit of guesswork. There's a fair amount of guesswork. But uh, again, there's some really, really good demographic economists, historical economists yeah. who are out there working. And it's an interesting area. One of the fascinating things is then, this comes back to COVID. The question then is, why did the human population... At a time when, and this is the interesting thing, at a time when human fertility increased, because the hunter, think about the hunter-gatherers, they actually staggered their children, because you, you actually can't carry around more than one or two children if you're moving around. Yeah, yeah, it makes so sense. So hunter, hunter-gatherer women had far less children than settled women. Right, yeah, yeah. That what you see is a massive increase in fertility 
and in just increasing babies yeah. once we start to settle down in these communities. But then the question is, the question is, if there was an increase, a massive increase in fertility, why didn't the population increase dramatically? Yeah. And what must be the case is that when we began to settle down, when we began to domesticate animals, sheep, goats, cows, chickens, yeah. all that sort of stuff, yeah, yeah. we suddenly became exposed for the first time in human history. And if you think, if you go back to human history, I mean, we were using fire for two or 300,000 years before this, right? Okay, right. as hunter-gatherers. So we were yeah. figuring out the world, but we get exposed to diseases, to pathogens, which existed in the animals, but we had no immunity to them. In the same way as COVID comes from Wuhan, jumps from a bat to a human, yeah, and, and the rest we know to be history in the last 12 months. Well, allegedly, John. Allegedly, allegedly, right? But so the conclusion that these long-run demographers are having about economics of the Stone Age is that, all the way up to now, is that humans, by domesticating, ushered in a period which is probably the most lethal period in human history for humans because we get exposed to influenza, to smallpox, to yeah. measles, to mumps, yeah. all yeah. these diseases, to all these various plagues. Yeah. And then I was thinking, I was doing some reading on Mesopotamia, which was the first place that humans actually settled in cities, had states, had tax collectors, had grain stores, all that sort of stuff. Really interesting. Yeah. And the language they spoke is a language called Akkadian. Okay. And they were really well aware of contagion and epidemics. They understood exactly what was going on, that these were coming, these were, these were diseases that were jumping from healthy people, from sick people to healthy people, right? But the word for epidemic in Akkadian literally means certain death. Isn't that amazing? Oh, Isn't that right. amazing? Yeah, that's but incredible. Yeah. To come back to our lockdown, right? So we're talking about 7,000 years ago, John, right? Mm. They deployed exactly the same tactics that we are deploying now, despite all our advances in science and in, in, in medicine and everything. They had lockdowns. They had quarantines. Track and trace. They were suspicious of people from coming outside the city walls. They made people who were coming from outside the city walls quarantine outside the city. Yeah, yeah. They worried about the collapse in taxation. I mean, the great thing is this, the language they, 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 they wrote was cuneiform. Mm. And this has preserved enormous records now. They worried about the collapse in tax revenues because people weren't working, because the fields were fallow. They worried about spending too much money, about government spending when there wasn't revenue. So they worried about exactly the same things as we do now. Yeah, yeah. And, and yet the lockdown and quarantine existed 7,000 years ago. Wow, that's extraordinary. And are still very much the only policies we're deploying now, which yeah. I, I, I find that kind of extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, time and time again, we see history beating itself. But so who were the guys that kind of recognised how sickness and disease were passed on? And also, who were the guys who came up with the idea of quarantining in the first place? Oh, well, they had like, they had druids and they had, they had medics and they had, if you think about the hunter-gatherers knew so much about yeah. the power of flowers and fauna and medicine and vegetation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And they passed this down orally, even though they settled. So they had quite a comprehensive understanding of basic medicine. They also had tax collectors, they had bureaucrats, they had kings, they had soldiers. Yeah. So they had a structure 
in the economy that worked extremely well. In fact, I've just found evidence of the first Excel spreadsheet ever in cuneiform. <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of shocking. The whole Microsoft <laughs> Office Yeah, suite. yeah, yeah. There was an Excel spreadsheet, which was actually all, had all these inputs and outputs about herds and how much milk they'd create. And if you invested in this herd, how much money you'd make at the far side. Kind of terrifying that they were being bullied by Excel in the same way as we are uh, 7,000 years ago. I, I always knew Bill Gates was a time traveller. <laughs> and they also had PowerPoints. This is where I got yeah. the, I saw the first PowerPoint as well. Yeah, you see, Gates again. They did because they'd, they had investors and they'd go and make pitches to them. Like, it's really... It's not that dissimilar to us. It's magic. Right? I love it. You see, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. <laughs> nothing has changed, except they had better suits, I suspect. And amazing beards. And they had fantastic beards. I mean, they would make the hipster <laughs> ashamed of their bewaxed efforts. These fellas had curly beards, proper ones. And they also used wax, beeswax in the beard and everything. So it's, it's, nothing has changed at all. I you bet know? they had man bags and drinking oat milk and their frappuccinos. I bet you they did have oat milk. I bet you they did. Well, of course they had plenty of oat milk because you know what <laughs> happened to them? They moved from the very diet of the hunter-gatherer to a terrifyingly yeah. tiny sliver of a diet based on, 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 on wheat and oats and barley. Yeah. I and mean, this is the, one of the great things. And if you read your man Hariri, Yuval Hariri's book, yeah, Sapiens, which is a great book. And I know you've read it. It's a great book, yeah. You know, he makes the point that the biggest fraud in history was this idea that was a progression from the hunter-gatherer lifestyle to the settled sedentary lifestyle. Yeah. He's saying that wasn't the case. In fact, the hunter-gatherer was a much freer geezer. Yeah, and he actually said that they were, you know, almost like an elite they had a much better lifestyle. They had a much healthier diet, much more varied diet, as he said. Yeah. And they didn't have to break their backs working as farmers. They were like, I mean, even physically, John, they were at least three inches taller. Oh, really? Because they're, yeah, because their oh. diet. So again, if you, it's, it's, it's back to, to, to looking at graves and, and figuring out the size of skeletons and all that from archaeology. Mm. But let's come to the lockdown. Let's. What is fascinating for us is the fact that our lockdown is broadly similar to theirs. And our yeah. medical knowledge, although fantastically better than theirs, has been flummoxed by this pretty basic disease. Yeah, right. So apart from their IT expertise and their their experience with Microsoft Word, etc. <laughs> Ancient PowerPoints. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But from an economics perspective... I suppose the likes of Cyrus the Great and Gilgamesh and all those kind of heads, I suppose they acted like the central bank and helicopter money, as it were, from those days. Are there other similarities or, or things that we can learn from those guys from way back when? Well, I, I think there are similarities, John. You don't want to stretch these things too much. But what is very clear is that then the pandemics killed the majority of people. Yeah. That's why I go back to my idea that it was immunity in the second half of that 10,000-year period, learned over centuries, yeah. that survivors passed on the genetic information of immunity to their kids. Then once we became more immune to these diseases, the population goes through the roof because we're not being killed all the time by recurrent pandemics. Sure. We're being killed, but we figured out how to deal with them and quarantine them, and we certainly have immunity. So we, you see that humans built up immunity. And the best way you see this is that when Western Europeans arrived in Latin America, yes. those yeah, people yeah. have been cut off from us for 12,000 years. 
and we gave them smallpox straight away, yeah. a disease that we'd built up a certain amount of immunity and it killed almost 80% of them. But then the thing is, we didn't really, we, we still don't have total immunity to the common cold, but the point is it doesn't kill us, so it doesn't but matter. it's constantly evolving. But if it kills you, then you need to build up immunity. Anyway, so, yeah, yeah. and the people, the, those, those populations. Anyway, the point I was thinking about was where we really have lost our imagination on this, John, is on the economics, right? So let's think about lockdown two. Right. Lockdown two commercial property goes through the floor because people are not allowed to go back to the office, let alone want to go back, even if people don't want to go back. And I believe people don't want to go back, as we talked about last week, and there will be a real change in the way in which we deal with work and going to work and not work. Second is retail. Third thing, think about all the bars and restaurants being asked to close again, right? Think about the arts industry, the sort of stuff that, you know, we do with the with, with festivals, which is sort of on the margins, yeah, right? Yeah, the crack economy. Think about all the theatres, all the musicians, all the creative artists, all the performing artists. These, these industries are all gone now. Yeah. They yeah. cannot survive a second lockdown simply because they've no cash. Sure. And when they've no cash... What happens is the people, back to that idea, John, that when you've no cash, you've got a credit crunch because the people who you owe money to think, okay, these guys are not allowed to open again. Therefore, they have no income. Therefore, they have no cash. Therefore, I don't have an asset on my balance sheet, which is called the money that David or John owes me, but I now have a bad debt. And therefore, my balance sheet is going to be impaired. Therefore, I call in my debts and suddenly what you see is you get another credit panic in the economy, a winter credit panic. Sure, yeah. And then I was thinking what the people in Mesopotamia didn't have, but we have, is the bond market. Yeah, yeah. The bond market is the key to saving the economy because the bond market allows us to borrow from the future to prop up the present, if you think of it in that way, right? Mm. So you can borrow for what you imagine to be a brighter future in order to prop up what you know to be a traumatised present. Yeah, yeah. That wasn't available to our friends, the Mesopotamians, right? So then you think, why don't we use that? Why don't we think about that? And it's back to this idea of helicopter money. If the problem in the businesses that have been locked down... Mm and it will be locked down in the next few weeks, it seems. Sure, yeah. If the problem is a lack of cash, then give them cash. Yeah. And the problem goes away. And how do you give them cash? The Irish state just simply goes up to the ECB and presents an IOU. The ECB gives real cash, and they just give it to businesses. Now, you can have all sorts of Mm. checks and balances and obligations and small print or whatever, but the idea is helicopter money which we talked about in March, is still the solution, John, six months later. That's the interesting thing. And the ECB is still the institution that has given us the opportunity to do this and is still saying, keep doing it. And yet we're not doing it. And so when I hear the state saying, we're going to lock down again, and then I hear business saying, well, hold on a second, we can't deal with this. It's as if there's a dialogue of the deaf between the two. Right? Yeah, absolutely. But there's a but there's a way forward and there's a way through this. Mm. And and that is to use the bond market in the way in which the bond market was always designed to borrow from the future to pay for today. Sure. And again, I come back to it. Sometimes, John, simple solutions are avoided by intelligent people 
because intelligent people believe that simple solutions equate to stupidity. <clears throat> yeah. But we know that complicating things equates to stupidity when the solution is right in front of your face. Yeah. And I'd say if the poor old Mesopotamians with their funny beards and their waxed beards <laughs> and, their, and their basic Excel spreadsheets, if they had had the opportunity to borrow from the future to prop up the present, they would have done so. Yeah. And the only reason we don't do that, John, is that the people who run our place don't have the imagination. <sighs> we have the tools. Yeah. yeah. We have the capacity. Yeah, yeah. Interest rates are at 0%. Long-term interest rates are 0%, so the money is free. All we don't have is the imagination to realise that that is the economic and financial vaccine to COVID. We have it. We're just not using it. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You know, as you're talking about Mesopotamia and ancient Persia and all that kind of stuff, what I do find really interesting is that, you know, this area was the the cradle of civilization. You know, from there, back in the day, we got the first urban areas, we got money, we got communication, we got writing, we got agriculture, all that stuff. Yeah. But what I find amazing is that the area is still so incredibly volatile, largely because of the interference of of the West. Yeah, no. You know, I also find it's incredible that a lot of the American soldiers going into the Iraq War, one or two or whatever, had no idea about the significance of the people and of the place and kind of treated them as backward and almost uncivilized. Well, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's the cradle of our civilization. It's where the world begins to take a form that starts to look and feel like the form that we have. You know, we said it there, tax collectors, yeah. bureaucracies, soldiers, kings, 
temples, money, of course, money emerges there, writing, literature, all those things. And over time, they become the basis for our civilization, Semitic languages, all that sort of stuff, you know. Great yeah. religions come from that place. The Zoroastrians and Persians, the Arabs, the Muslims, the Christians, the Jews, all these great tribes come from that neck of the woods. And what has been endlessly, endlessly tragic has been the amount of wars that have been fought in those regions. Because there's like there's three big, big tribes there. The, the, the Turks, the Persians and the Arabs all yeah, yeah, yeah. looking for supremacy there. Every now and then the Russians come down looking for a sniff around. The Brits came down because the Brits wanted to actually preserve that neck of the woods. And we're going to talk about this in a second. And after the fall of the Ottoman Empire, John, when the Ottoman Empire begins to atrophy and when mm. the sultans begin the gradual and then very sudden process of leaving the extremities of the empire, what you see yeah. is the discovery of oil and the discovery of oil changes everything because it's a thing that they call in economics, John, the curse of oil, that you're actually yeah. cursed in a way when you find oil because everybody wants a piece of your country. Everybody pushes you around, everybody tries to invade you, corruption becomes endemic, all those things. So, yeah. It's like the curse of the lottery winner as well. John, it's exactly the same. It's exactly yeah, the yeah, same. Yeah, yeah. Now, on this note, John, Mesopotamia, yeah. Iran, the Fertile Crescent, oil, we have a fantastic interview and conversation coming up. A wonderful, wonderful documentary has been released, amazingly, it couldn't get general release in the United States because it's so inflammatory. But it's actually more inflammatory about the British involvement in the coup in 1953 in Iran to depose Mossadegh, the elected leader of Iran, who actually ran on a ticket of, we are going to take back the oil revenues of this country. Now, who owned the oil revenues? British Petroleum. It was called the yeah. British Persian Oil Company. Think about it. And this guy gets deposed in a coup. Now, what is fascinating for us now is the coup in Iran sets the tone for all sorts of interventions in the Middle East we've seen since then. Yeah, you know, the 1953 coup seems to be the ground zero for everything that we're reaping now all the, the chaos and conflict and hatred of the West all stems from or appears to stem from this 1953 coup. But hold on, let's first of all have a listen to a little clip and then the conversation because it's really, really good. In 1953, the United States, together with Britain, participated in a coup in Iran. Mossadegh and his government were swept from power in favor of General Zahidi. 300 killed and hundreds wounded is a conservative estimate. The British government has never officially acknowledged its role in the coup. I don't think at any time we really planned a coup d'etat. These words have not been heard or seen for over 34 years. Evidence that has the potential to turn a dark chapter in history inside out. 
Now, we were just talking there about Mesopotamia, the Middle East, and how the Middle East has fared in our history, in our culture, our language, our religion, everything over the years. But now we want to ask the question, why was the West involved in the Middle East? When did it all start? How did it start? There is a brilliant movie just out called Coup 53. It's on in the IFI, the Irish Film Institute in Dublin right now. And it explains the extraordinary and chilling story behind what happened in a coup d'etat in Iran in 1953. And I have on the line the two men who made this documentary. One is Taghi Amirani, who is an Iranian physicist who gave up physics to start making documentaries, amazing documentaries. And the other man on the line is Walter Mersch. Walter Mersch is a legend. This is a man who's won three Oscars, nine Oscar nominations. He has done the editing of the sound of Apocalypse Now, The Godfather, American Graffiti, The English Patient, etc. So, gentlemen, how are you? Good afternoon. afternoon. Taggy, can I start with you? Just set the scene for me. Iran, 1950, 1951, 1952. Who was in power? What was going on? What was the big play? Right. Something important happened in 51. Iran's Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh got elected on the ticket of nationalizing Iranian oil which at the time was controlled by the British. And they'd been exploiting uh, the Iranian oil resources for nearly 50 years. In fact, when oil was discovered in Iran, Churchill described it as a prize from fairyland beyond our wildest dreams. The Anglo-Iranian oil company was set up to exploit Iranians, Iran's oil. Uh, it, uh, it, it took all the, all the revenue back to London without giving any, any back to the Iranians. It was the biggest overseas assets of the British, And they were having an incredible time using this resource to run the British Navy, to rebuild Britain after the war, uh, pay their debts. Uh, You know, Iranian oil fueled Britain for a long time. Mossadegh came to power in 1951 and got elected on two tickets only. He had two things on his ticket, nationalizing Iranian oil, taking control back to Iran and kicking the British out and reforming the electoral system. This didn't go down well with Churchill, who used to mock Mossadegh as called him Mussy Duck. Uh, and so th- th- there began a battle between the two forces, Mossadegh on one side, the nationalized, the nationalists on the one side, and Churchill on the other side. And, and so it, it came to a head when, the, when Mossadegh threw them out. They evacuated the refinery. The refinery was like almost like a state within a state. The British treated Iranians like second-class citizens. In fact, we have an amazing line in the documentary that they, they treated Iranians like wops. That's the word that, that's used. Uh, they were very much like second-class citizens. And when they left the refinery, uh, they, they, they decided this is it. We have people in the film saying our goal was to remove Mossadegh as soon as possible. He wasn't doing any good for Iran. Not that he wasn't doing any good for us, he wasn't doing any good for Iran. Um, to cut a long story short, because I want you to see the film, uh, they couldn't really get rid of him on, on, on their own uh, because they kicked him out, he closed the embassy and threw them all out. Uh, and so Churchill reached out to Eisenhower and said, you've got to help us get rid of this guy, not because we want control of our oil back, but because he's going to turn Iran communist. There's a threat of communism. He's, a, he's Secretly, he's got communist tendencies. And so the plans for the coup were in place. MI6 got involved. CIA got involved. You know, as you said in your intro, uh, for the last 67 years, this has been known as the CIA coup in Iran. What our film re- reveals in an explosive way that this was actually an MI6 masterminded coup. They brought the American in, Americans in to help them out. 
So it's very much a British coup in Iran with American support. And that's what the film reveals for the first time. Taki, can I just bring you back to the oil there? Because I read many years ago that Iranian oil allowed the British, and I think it might have been even Churchill himself, to switch the British Navy from coal to oil-powered, and that gave them a huge technical advantage just during the First World War when they were building up their fleet. Is that the case? Yes. In fact, Churchill, in his previous life, the first Lord of the Admiralty, he converted the British Navy from coal to oil with the backing of Iranian oil. That was the impetus. So, Taggy, tell me, what actually happened at the coup? What actually happened on the streets of Tehran? Okay, um, well, when the British were kicked out and uh, Churchill reached out to Harry Truman first and Harry Truman said, no, I think that he has a point. They have to respect Iranian sovereignty and do a deal, come to some kind of arrangement. But then Truman left office, Eisenhower came in, the Dulles brothers, the terrible Dulles brothers, who were Secretary of State, uh, John Foster and Alan Dulles, head of the CIA. They had, they had personal interest in Iranian oil even before then. They had personal interest in huge contracts in Iran, which Mossad nipped in the bud. Eisenhower was more receptive. The Dulles brothers got on the case. Uh, they masterminded the plan with the British agents. It was a classic coup plan. It was the first time the CIA were involved in the coup. It was a brand new kid on the block, lots of money. It wanted to go and play. And MI6 said, come out and play here. Uh, bring your muscle. It was a, the ingredients were bribery of politicians, recruiting uh, military officials, putting out propaganda in Iranian press, you know, fake news. Trump keeps going on about fake news. Well, the CIA and MI6 invented fake news in Iran in 1953 uh, to undermine and destabilize Mossadegh. So these elements were all into play. Of course, they had to, they had the Shah, a very young, inexperienced and kind of uh, un, un, unstable in terms of his decision-making came to, they had to get him on board. And, um, and, and, and I don't, again, there are so many dramatic twists and turns that you see in the film, which kind of unfolds, people are telling us, unfolds like a thriller. Uh, until uh, finally, uh, on August uh, 19, 1953, everything fell into place for the coup plotters, and uh, they overthrew Mossadegh. Uh, they picked an army general to take over, just like Pinochet in Chile, and, uh, and the Shah, who had escaped during the days of the upheaval, because the first attempt of the coup failed, the, uh, the Shah returned, and, um, and Mossadegh was put on trial, believe it or not, for treason, uh, and then jailed for three years in solitary confinement and exiled to his house until he died. So he was actually Mossadegh, the elected leader of Iran, was more or less disappeared from the scene. How was this reported in the 50s? Because Iran is a huge country, a massive oil player. In fact, the end of the Second World War and the carve-up was constructed in Tehran between Eisenhower, in Tehran between Churchill, Stalin and Roosevelt, I mean, this couldn't have gone unnoticed in the West. Well, yes, it, it was. It, um, for a start, the, the actual covert operation obviously was never reported, but the way it was portrayed was that this kind of crazy, uh, rather bizarre, eccentric prime minister who stood up to the mighty power of the British Empire needs to be got rid of because he's destabilizing Iran, he's cutting off our oil supply, and he's a, he's a threat, he's a potential, he's going to give Iran to the Russians. Was, Iran was obviously at this kind of very hypersensitive, as you say, geopolitical position of north, the Russians, south, the Brits. And this power play had been going on since the war. And so when the evacuation happened and the Iranian, the British were expelled from the British embassy, 
the British did something crazy. They, they put adverts in all foreign newspapers saying anybody who buys Iranian oil is actually buying stolen oil. It's, like, it's ours. And if you think sanctions and embargoes, which are wow, happening. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah they, they, they got the lawyers. Uh, I mean, that's another thing to know. Uh, Anglo-Iranian oil company is BP. How many people know BP was born in Iran? British Petroleum was born in Iran first as Anglo-Persian oil company, then Anglo-Iranian. And after the coup, it, became, it came out fully as BP and had to share Iranian oil with Americans. So there are, there are a lot of things happening right now which have echoes and parallels with 53. Oil sanctions, embargoes, fake news, and the demonization of Iranians. And it's, it's a pivotal event, the consequences of which we're still living with. Walter, can I ask you, how did you get involved in this project? I mean, Taghi, I can see, is Iranian. This is part of his family history, his own history. How did you get involved? I mean, a mutual friend of ours, actually, uh, who you know, Idana, uh, told me that Walter only gets involved in projects now that he really wants to. So what was it? Well, it's certainly true in, in this case. I, I, I had edited Sam Mendes's film Jarhead in 2005, and in the process of doing that, had learned about Mossadegh and about the history of Middle Eastern oil, the whole uh, Churchill turning the fleet from coal to oil, which was fascinating. And I met Taghi in 2012, when I was in New York editing an, another documentary, Particle Fever, about the search for the Higgs boson, the Large Hadron Collider in Geneva, all of that. Toggy graduated in physics from Nottingham University, and we met at the gentleman who was financing both films, Coup uh, 53 and Particle Fever. And so we got started talking physics and film, and he came to see a screening of Particle Fever, loved it, helped us get to, into the Sheffield documentary festival where the film won the audience award and uh, we just kept in touch after that when Tagi would come to San Francisco to raise money most of the money for the film comes from Silicon Valley people although not exclusively but a large portion of it and so he'd stay at our house and make his way down to the peninsula to shake the can and come back and we would count the pennies and he'd go back to London I, I never thought I would work on this film but the project that I was working on came to an end, and I was at loose ends, as always happens, with no idea of what's next. And my wife, Aggie, who's English, uh, and Tagi put their heads together and said, well, we, we think the best thing for you is to go to London and work on this little documentary, historical documentary, for six or eight months. And as they say, the rest is history. Here we are five years later with many, many twists and turns in, in between. Uh, Walter, I mean, anybody who's made a documentary will know that the real magic actually happens in the edit suite, in your domain, in your manner, so to speak. Was there a moment or were there moments when in the edit you just uncovered things? You said, wow, look at this. This is new stuff. And that's really what got the whole documentary going. That's true. And I, I have a flag that I wave for as often as I can, which is that any film editor who works on a unscripted documentary, as, as this one was, as was Particle Fever, really deserves to get co-writing credit, which is what uh, happened on, on Coup 53 with, with me, because of exactly what you said, that we are 
uncovering things and trying to figure out the structure. New material is coming in that has to be evaluated. And frequently that new stuff upsets the apple cart that you just spent three weeks making all nice and neat. But that's, you know, part of the fantastic creative uh, frenzy that goes on in the cutting room of any kind of documentary. The difference between a fiction film and a documentary film is that the editor, particularly in the early stages of a fiction film, working from a script, is really like a a musician, a pianist, who is interpreting a written work. You know, how, how strong should I play this chord? Should I pedal this one? How quickly will I trill through this section? Whereas on a documentary like Coup 53, you are really digging deep into the DNA of the whole story and and writing it. You're not writing it in words so much, uh, although that does occasionally happen too. But uh, you are really putting together this complicated structure that uh, we had 532 hours of material, which... uh, Wow. Oh, my gosh. Let's now look small in comparison. And uh, the first assembly was eight and a half hours long. And... The, the film that you're about to see uh, is just under two hours long. So there's, there's many a story of how we get here from there. Taggy, can you put into context, what is the lesson of 53 for us now? I mean, the Middle East is still a cauldron of intervention, of various alliances, of rivalry. Russia's involved, America's involved, Britain's involved, Israel doing a deal with the UAE in the last uh, week or two. What is the lesson? And the legacy of 53? That's a fantastic question. You know, Harry Truman said, uh, there is nothing new in the world except the history you do not know. And a a lot of things that are unfolding now uh, happened before with Iran. Uh, There are echoes of it everywhere. Uh, You've listed a whole bunch of them. I think when it comes to the Middle East, it's always been about the oil. Uh, It was about the oil in 53. It was, as you say, in the first Gulf War in 91, and then the the invasion of Iraq in 2003. Incidentally, my brother made an amazing film about that as well, called We Are Many. Um, And so we said earlier, for everyone, Iran really didn't didn't exist, wasn't on everyone's mental map until the 1979 revolution. Everything, Iran started in the revolution, the hostage crisis, and everything that happened afterwards. Uh, we say, no, go back. Context is everything. And Walter said, I studied physics. I'm, I'm, as a physicist, I'm interested in cause and effect, you know, equal and opposite reactions, uh, as Newton said. I'm saying, go back to 53. Everything is rooted in that original sin. There would have been no revolution without 53. The resentment that was built into the Iranian minds and hearts from 53 exploded onto the streets in 79 and the downfall of the Shah. And why would they say he's an American puppet if he wasn't put Put in power, re-put re in power back in back in uh, 1953, and of course uh, we are living with the, the aftermath of the revolution right now. Uh, Iran, Iran is the bogeyman of the world, the, the axis of evil speech. Uh, the, the fact that you know that they're ratching things up right now because there's an election coming up, and when there's an election coming up, Americans need a foreign foreign enemy to unite the voices and the, the, the electorates. Thoughts. So the UN resolution a few days ago to increase arms embargo and this potential October surprise that we keep seeing in various articles. So it, it's the original sin, the consequences of which we are living with. 
and people need to understand. I, I don't subscribe to the idea of uh, Americans are, are, are ignorant or they just don't have the information. They're not stupid. If they really understood what their government did in their name with their money uh, back in the day, they might have a different perspective on American foreign policy. And the same here, you know, in, in Britain. You know, the British keep talking about this wonderful British sense of fair play. You know, we, we, you know, English sense of fair play. The thing is, when they pack their bags to go to Iran as some kind of imperial experiment, they forgot to pack that fair sense of play. Uh, it's okay here, but it's not okay outside. And so, yeah, um, it's it's blowback. It's what the Americans call blowback. We did something then; it's blowing back in our faces now. The other thing to keep in mind is that uh, the CIA was created in the late 1940s as a scholarly organization. And that's how it remained, more or less, during the Truman administration. But when the Dulles brothers and Eisenhower came to power in 52, they weaponized the CIA and turned it into a Cold War version of the OSS, which both Dulles brothers had been involved in. And the first thing out of the box as a test case was this uh, overthrow of Mossadegh and the end of democracy in Iran. By their own lights at the time, it was a huge success. And that also became the template for how the United States would control countries vis-a-vis -vis to their own special interests. They tried it out the next year in Guatemala and then the following year in Vietnam. And the, the installation of Diem in Vietnam in 55 was a, was a CIA uh, orchestrated event. Uh, we all know the ultimate consequences of what happened in, in Vietnam. So there, there certainly is many uh, cases of all of the blowback in the Middle East, but really it, it's an even bigger question, which is this became a template for all of the covert actions that the United States was involved in up to this day. Walter, I thought that was a very interesting point, the idea that basically 53 emboldened the CIA for lots and lots of subsequent interventions and regime changes that it orchestrated all around the world. But Tiger, you just mentioned something there about the American election coming up in a couple of months, the American needs an enemy. Do you think we're looking down the barrel at a conflict between America and Iran ahead of that election on the basis that it's always good to have an external enemy when you're fighting an election in the United States? Well, as an Iranian, I hope very much not. Uh, but, you know, we, we're dealing with a very erratic, unstable president who's in a desperate position. And, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures. Uh, anything is possible. Uh, and I know they're pushing for it. I mean, they had a humiliating defeat at the UN just a few days ago with this resolution, and they had one vote from Dominican Republic, I think, and everybody else abstained. But uh, there is a huge lobby that wants war, for their own purposes. Uh, I know Trump keeps saying he's a deal maker, but then he came in into power and broke, you know, tore up the deal on the nuclear negotiations that Obama had worked on for so long. I'm an optimist, and I think, and I think some, of this, some of this must be just grandstanding and kind of just hot talk. I really do hope that um, Trump doesn't decide war with Iran is going to help him get reelected. But, you know, um, war has always helped politicians. We had, we had Thatcher and Argentina, uh, you know, so who knows? 
Let's talk about Iran now, because it looks to me like Iran has won the peace in Iraq. It's much stronger. It's much more influential in the region. And in fact, as America fought the war in Iraq, ultimately to tell Iran, back off or you're next, now it seems that America's greatest enemy has actually been delivered a victory in the Middle East, and that is Iran is stronger than ever. Absolutely. I mean, Iran and Iraq have got historical roots going back forever, so and they're very close in many ways. So when that power vacuum that the invasion of Iraq created by destroying the infrastructure, disbanding the army and creating this like mess, allowed Iran to move in and have huge influence. And they've got a lot of influence. In fact, a lot of infrastructure in Iraq is built by Iranians. And yes, so in a way, they kind of shot themselves in the foot. They gave, they gave Iraq to their, <laughs> to their worst enemy. I mean, we've all heard the kind of the very cheesy joke that when, when Bush invaded Iraq, he got it mixed up. He, was, he wanted to go to Iran. <laughs> but, uh... Jens, just as a final question, now when the dust has settled and people have watched the movie, what would you hope, both of you, people will take away from the documentary? I, I think we, we haven't really dug into the character of uh, Norman Derbyshire, who uh, was not on our radar at all when we began this project. And if you see this film... He is the character played by Ray Fiennes or channeled by Ray Fiennes that uh, played the decisive role in not only carrying out the coup under his own direction, but he was one of the co-authors of the plan itself that was undertaken by uh, MI6 and CIA, although the CIA came in really as glorified bagmen who brought in lots of money to help grease the skids for all of the uh, mercenaries who had been uh, lined up by uh, Norman Derbyshire, uh, operating by mysteriously by radio from Cyprus. And uh, this is just a fascinating uh, aspect of the story that is still going on today. We've, we've found amazing stuff about Norman Derbyshire even after the film was finished. So there's a real character study aspect to this that is fascinating beyond all of the geopolitics. And it's marvelously portrayed by Ray Fiennes in this film. Yes. Now, obviously, the, uh, the revelation of Derbyshire is absolutely fascinating. It's one of the beautiful things about a granular, granular documentary. It makes those things possible. You see things you never saw before. Taggy, what do you hope people will come away with? Okay, so that's a very good question, and, 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 and um, I'm going to give you a little anecdote. We've been doing a little bit of social media uh, clips to promote the film, and we took a clip from the film about the oil revenue and how the British uh, were supposed to give Iran 16%, but you know, they, they even cheated them out, cheated them out of that. Uh, and uh, the, the, the Iran basically got nothing of the, the, their old money. We put this on social media, and I tell you, three countries have gone crazy about this clip. The, the, the viewing figures and the debate is just astounding. Ireland, Scotland, and India are going crazy about this clip. I, I, over a million people in India watched it. The, the Irish and the Scots saying, ha, huh, you're talking about your problems with the, the, the English and the oil in Iran. They've been doing that for us. To us <laughs> that, that leads me to this bigger picture. You know, I used to sit down... You know, with founders saying, give me money to make this film, and ultimately the question would come, why? And I would never say it openly, but now I can because there's huge, this critical mass building behind the film. 
I think it's time the British government officially acknowledged its leading role in this coup because they haven't done that for six or seven years. I think it's time they did that. It's the worst kept secret. It's an absurd situation that everyone knows, but they're not admitting it. And it's not far, too far-fetched that they should really apologize for what is a historical crime to the Iranian people. You know, I think, I think a government official apologies is not unheard of. I think didn't Cameron apologize for Bloody Sunday, I think? And, and yes, he did. Gordon Brown apologized. Yep. So I would love, I would love the people to first understand the context of the, the history, really understand what really happened, because most people don't for the reasons we've talked about, and then get on with us and get, get, you know, get them, persuade them. It's not push them, force them. I think it's for the, for the good of their own soul, soul to do this. It will be good for them to come clean and unburden themselves and then go forward with Iran in a more mutually respectful and understandable kind of more harmonious relationship. And if, uh, I, know, I know apologies don't come easy to Boris Johnson, but it would be amazing. It would be amazing if they just simply uh, offered an official apology to Iran for looting their oil, overthrowing their democracy and messing their future for the, you know, the next seven decades. Very interesting little detail, Taggy, there about Churchill sort of undermining and belittling Mossadegh on the basis of his surname. It sounds almost the sort of thing that Boris Johnson would do. And it's kind of typical of the colonial sneering at the colonised. Look, I can't wait to see this documentary, Coup 53. It's on in the IFI now. So Taggy Amarani and Walter Mersch, thank you both so much for taking the time to talk to us on the podcast. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, David, and John and JM. Thank you. Wow. Fascinating stuff, wasn't it? But actually, as I was listening there, I was just thinking to myself, God, I actually want to talk to Walter Murch more about his sound design career. Just kind of nerd out a bit. <laughs> it was great. But anyway, do you know what I think was the most striking thing about the whole story of the coup of 53 is the blatant hypocrisy of America Britain and the West as a whole, you know, preaching the virtues of democracy, blah, 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 while creating a festering wound. And as Taggy says, you know, this is an issue that needs to be acknowledged and addressed. Like, I'm not sure how that would come about, but but it is a wound that needs to heal. (laughs) Like, it's a fascinating story. Yeah, really looking forward to seeing it. Yeah, no, it it is. I mean, I always think that... uh, the expression from Cecil Rhodes, which was the white man's burden, which was referring to the white man's burden, it is the white man's burden to civilise Africa, was very much the tone taken in all those colonists and all those imperialists and all those people who decided that they would take it upon themselves to determine who ran a country. I think the Americans were completely terrified during the Cold War of Russians They had the domino theory, the domino theory, which was that basically if you allow one country go communist or nationalist or nationalizing, it'll domino into another country. The Russians were not beyond playing the game as well and were very, very instrumental at destabilizing lots and lots of countries. Particularly, you think they invaded Afghanistan in 1978. That was long after the Americans had involved themselves in the area. So everyone's really at fault. But the, Russia, the difference between the Americans and the Brits and the Russians is the Russians never really said they were coming in for civilization. You know, they yeah. actually said, they actually said yeah. coming in to spread Marxism. And Marxism was a form yeah, of yeah, civilization. Yeah. But no, I can't wait to see that. It'll be really interesting. 
And But, you know, I, I should mention here as well is that when we did that interview with John Brennan uh, a couple of years ago at the Ducky Book Festival, and you asked him about the the coup in, in 53, he was incredibly uncomfortable. He, and he yeah, was shifting he was. in his seat. <laughs> he, he he, I, by the way, that interview is on Patreon forward slash David McWilliams. Great, sir. Yeah, it's there. It's a, it's a great interview and it's a great insight into... Uh, well, as much as he would give away the, the workings of the CIA, but I did think it was very telling that he was very uncomfortable with that element of it. Well, that's interesting. So that's on Dave McWilliams, patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. That's John Brennan, former head of the CIA. John, before we go, before we go, uh, Lucy has a new track out this week. It's, I know, it's that's brilliant. Runaway and the, uh, as I was saying at the top, you know, the, the, the last track, I mean, she was amazed at how well it did, fair play. So this one's a bit, this is like, you, you've had a quick listen to it, haven't you? Yeah, I have. I think it's brilliant. And I'm not just saying that. It, it's kind of got a nostalgic feel. It kind of reminds me of that R&B jazz kind of cool scene in London in kind of the early 90s. And then Lucy's voice really suits that. I think it's fantastic. It's a great tune. Another great tune. She's a Christ, Mac. We actually sound like smashy and nicey. <laughs> well, as I always know, you know, Dunleary clearly is the home of R&B and Bossa Nova. And <laughs> that's where it comes from. But let's play out with uh, Lucy McWilliams' latest yeah, track. Absolutely. And we'll talk to you all next week. Take care. Sometimes I wish I could run away, run away, run away with you. But I know deep in my bones
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 